This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, complete coverage of the Surrey policing mess as the city takes its quite to court to stop the transition to a municipal police force. Plus, what's the right number of immigrants for Canada? Immigration Minister Mark Miller drops by as we discuss Canada's labour needs and ever-growing international student population. And Conservative Party leader Pierre Polyev joins us to talk affordability and the carbon tax. Plus, our Friday rap panel looks at the popularity of concert films as Taylor Swift's new production hits theatres. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. The City of Surrey has launched a petition in B.C. Supreme Court to try and halt the ongoing transition from the RCMP to the Surrey Police Service. It is seeking a judicial review of the province's July 19th decision to try and force the municipality to go through with the police transition. The city says it opposes the transition as it would result in a significant tax burden at a time when Surrey residents are already facing existing affordability challenges. Now, the move was announced in a statement Friday, uh, marking the latest development in a year long controversy over replacing the RCMP as the police force of jurisdiction in this province's second largest city. Now, the city has retained Peter German, who is a lawyer and a former deputy commissioner with the RCMP, to advise on the legal issues. Uh, Peter German joins us now. Peter, thank you for speaking to us today. It's a pleasure, Jess. Uh, Walk me through, uh, what advice have you given the city of Surrey in regards to uh, this transition? Yeah, well, I certainly can't get into advice that I've given, but I'm not acting in a legal capacity here. I'm, I'm an advisor in terms of the strategy, in terms of policing and so forth for the city of Surrey. But specifically today, I was asked uh, to speak on behalf of council with respect to uh, the filing of a petition which took place this morning in the B.C. Supreme Court. Why do you think Surrey is having challenges with this transition? What are some of the key issues uh, that they've certainly articulated to you in regards to this transition? Right. And I think it's all really a matter of public record at this point. Uh, The majority of council, uh, Jazz, was elected on uh, the platform uh, of keeping the RCMP. And why? Well, quite simply, because to transition to a new police force will be a huge uh, financial cost to the taxpayers of Surrey. And uh, we've always said that there would be a, a real, uh, in, it's probably an inability uh, to hire the number of, uh, by uh, Surrey Police Service, to hire the number of frontline officers that they require to do the job. And it seems that that is, in fact, the case. Uh, Surrey has put forward a very clear case to uh, the province. Uh, we did that uh, prior to uh, the new year, um, a plan uh, for policing and uh, retaining the RCMP as the police force and jurisdiction. Any sense of what the cost is or what the city says is the is the cost for this full transition? Right. It's actually in the petition that was filed uh, this morning, page 9, if anyone wants to look at it. It's a public document. Um, there, there are two costs here that you have to be aware of. If we continue with two police forces, uh, you're looking at a cost of approximately $53 million a year additional to what the Surrey taxpayers should be paying uh, by virtue of the fact that there are two police forces. However, the bigger figure is that if this transition were to continue, the cost difference to the Surrey taxpayer is estimated, and that's in the petition, 
at approximately $464 million over 10 years, not even looking at capital and other issues. So uh, so that's just the transition itself, the capital cost, potentially buildings, um, IT services, all of that. You're saying that would be even higher. That would be on top of that, the costs. On top of the $464 million, correct. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the Police Act governs all of this. Does the province not have the ultimate say uh, in this conversation in regards to the transition? Well, that really is the issue in, in some ways for the court to look at. Uh, Surrey is questioning the jurisdiction of the Solicitor General to make the decision that he did on July 19th. And so the, the court will obviously look at relevant legislation and so forth. And I would just say that, you know, the, the minister has been very clear that policing is for municipalities. And uh, so Surrey uh, taxpayers, uh, Surrey electors, elected uh, council and the majority of council on the basis of uh, the platform keep the RCMP. And, uh, and now uh, the minister has said uh, they can't. But uh, the, the, does the Police Act not give final say to the Solicitor General and the provincial government? I mean, municipalities are creatures of the provincial government. I mean, through a stroke of a pen, not that it would happen, uh, a city couldn't exist without the provincial government giving them the opportunity to exist. They are creatures of the provincial government. The Police Act, to my understanding, basically says the Solicitor General has the ultimate say. The government, provincial government, has the ultimate say in this. It, it doesn't matter whether or not what Ms. Locke and her colleagues ran on and whether or not they oppose one policing service over another, it's, it would almost be irrelevant. Ultimately, what the law no. says is the Police Act, which is the provincial government. Am I wrong here? Not that you're right or wrong. It, it is an issue for the court at this point, Jazz. Um, that is really That goes to the, the nexus of the uh, petition that was filed, the mm-hmm. jurisdiction of the province. Where does it begin and where does it end? And certainly the Police Act would be a relevant piece of legislation, but there may, other, may be other legislation as well that's relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you a broader question, just away from Surrey for a moment. Uh, there's mm-hmm. been much talk about, you know, uh, a, a, a regional police force one day. Uh, many major cities in the city have city police forces for the entire city. We, like our municipal politics, our policing is balkanized in this city. Um, some municipal, some, some RCMP. Do you think that, broadly speaking, if we ever were to go towards a regional police service, not just Surrey, but regionally, it should be something that led by the provincial government and we should never allow municipalities to be making that decision, A, because of the costs, it can get very convoluted, and uh, localized politics plays a role as well. It should uh, actually be led by a senior level of government. Well, I'll say a couple of things on that, uh, Jazz. It's a good question, but first of all... um, the issue before us today has really nothing to do with the color of the stripe of a police officer's uniform, whether it's blue or whether it is yellow or red. Um, uh, police officers in the Lower Mainland actually work very well together. I was the Lower Mainland commander for the RCMP for a number of years, and the RCMP uh, work very closely with municipal police. There are integrated teams. The system that is currently in place works very well. Um, now, if you were to look hypothetically at a regional police force, it is what Surrey um, has attempted to do by transitioning uh, to a new police force is, is essentially unprecedented in Canada. Where there have been regional police forces, they tend to follow regional mergers of municipalities. It's very unusual, almost unprecedented to see what's been taking place here. 
Uh, I'll leave it at that for now. Would love to have you in studio to take uh, more questions and calls as well. Appreciate your time today, Peter. More than happy to do that, Jazz, and thanks very much. Always nice talking to you. Let's talk about Vancouver for a moment. Uh, The city is now talking about uh, whether or not they want to move forward with a pedestrian scramble, essentially a pedestrian crossing with, uh, I guess, six uh, intersections, I guess, six six ways to get across the street. Now, you see this in, um, you know, global cities around the world. I I went to, visited the main uh, sort of scramble in Tokyo many, many years ago. It works for that city. It's, as you know, millions of people there, 25 million plus, uh, but they are going to visit that situation this uh, the, come this October 17th. Uh, Vancouver Council will decide whether to proceed with a pedestrian scramble crossing at Granville and Robson Streets. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the pedestrian scramble is Peter Meisner. He is the ABC Vancouver City Councilor. Peter, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Jeff. So why do we need a pedestrian scramble? Yeah, so as you mentioned, this is the norm in cities around the world. And some of the great things about the pedestrian scramble, apart from being able to cross in all directions at the same time, are that it really helps to minimize conflict between pedestrians and vehicles. So when the scramble is uh, has the walk signal, all the different directions of traffic are stopped. So what that helps to do is eliminate conflicts between vehicles turning left or right, for example, and crosswalks. And I think many people can relate to being in a crosswalk with a walk signal and a car is going to come into the crosswalk anyways. So that's uh, really the idea behind it. And also just to pilot uh, a pedestrian-friendly initiative for downtown Vancouver. And so for our listeners, that th- th- what this will allow beyond just generally the general pedestrian crossings, you see it uh, a- at an intersection, you'll be able to go diagonally across uh, these pedestrian crossings. Now, the first one, as I said, was at Granville and Robson Street. Why that particular intersection? Why are you focusing on that one first? Yeah, so we did have staff analyze where this uh, scramble intersection would be the best. So that's the engineering department. They're, they're experts in this. And they decided that this would be the best intersection for the pilot because it's not a super, super busy uh, intersection for vehicle traffic, but it is a busy intersection for pedestrians. I would say that pedestrians far outnumber vehicles there. And also, it actually has upgraded uh, signal controllers. So one thing I learned since I've been on city council is it's not that simple to just change out a streetlight, like a, a traffic signal, for example. You have to also change the controllers that control that signal, and they're very expensive. So... This intersection actually has upgraded uh, signal controllers already, so that's going to bring the cost down significantly. Mm -hmm. Now, what other street uh, corners would you consider? If this one moves forward, you like what's happening, would you be looking at other intersections? Yeah, so what I'd like to see is a report back uh, from staff once once the pilot is underway in uh, next summer of 2024 on how it went. And then what other intersections we could possibly bring this to. So as part of this report, they did uh, consider four potential locations. So Granville and Robson, where the pilot uh, will be if it's approved by council next week, but also Granville and Georgia Street, Commercial and First, and Demon and Davie. With Granville and Georgia and Commercial and First, I have a lot of questions because those are very, very busy routes. Uh, Granville and Georgia is uh, a bus route. We have buses going to and from the North Shore. Uh, And Commercial and First, I would say, is a pretty dangerous intersection, in my opinion. People 
tend to move pretty fast on First Avenue. So would like more information on that before we move forward. But mm-hmm. uh, Demon and Davy, I think, could be a great spot right by English Bay. Yeah, well, I'm a bit biased towards Granville and George just because it's right by our offices. We were just talking about that earlier today in the office. And uh, it is a busy place. Lots of inter- uh, interaction, lots of folks walking around. It's busy. Uh, just on in regards to density and, and being busy, it, looks, it, it is a pretty good one. But it, 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 you're right. It's a, there's a lot of buses. Uh, it's, a, it's a busy place. So you would – and I guess in this case, as you say, there even with the one that you're testing at, George, uh, Granville and Robson, it will delay some bus bus services by a little bit, right? There will be some slowdown. It could, it could. So that's with some of the stakeholder engagement we're hoping that staff will do uh, if we decide to move forward with this. So it would delay uh, buses going north-south on gravel by um, a few seconds more than they currently are. I believe about 30 seconds. I'm not sure how long this, the, the uh, signal is now. Probably about half of that, um, by my estimation. So we'll do the due diligence with TransLink to make sure it's not going to have a big impact on transit service because we, you know, we obviously wouldn't want to see that. But another key uh, uh, benefit of that intersection is that the buses go north and south on Granville. They don't really turn for the most part. Hopefully, that's minimal. And ultimately, the goal here is is this is just much more pedestrian friendly, right? These 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 uh, scramble uh, intersections just makes it easier and safer for for pedestrians. Yeah, we want to make it easier to walk around downtown Vancouver. So that's what the idea behind the Gastown uh, pilot of a street closure next summer. We're doing engagement on that right now. And the idea between the plaza behind the art gallery on Robson Street. And also, if you walk, you know, you walk downtown a lot, Jazz, you mm-hmm. probably notice that some intersections have a, a walk signal that comes on before the light. So mm-hmm. the, the people can actually get into the crosswalk before the traffic starts moving. Mm-hmm. And that's just safer for people and pedestrians. Uh, so cars can, you know, make sure that uh, they see people. Peter, thanks for your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You too, Jess. Thanks a lot. Well, Mark Miller is Canada's fifth Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada in almost eight years of the Liberal government. He has a lot on his plate. We are a country with an aging workforce that requires immigrants, but we're also a country that remains skeptical of our immigration and refugee levels. Uh, Mr. Miller has also inherited a ministry that continues to deal with backlogs in immigration and refugee applications. Uh, Mr. Miller is in Vancouver today, uh, where he has been speaking to various service provider organizations, newcomers resettlement agencies, and during his Western uh, swing, he also hosted a citizenship ceremony as well. Uh, he's met with well-known local organizations like Success and Mosaic, and along with North Shore uh, Minister uh, Wilkinson, Jonathan Wilkinson, he was at North Shore Impact as well. Uh, Minister Miller, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Josh. Happy to be on. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, our numbers first and foremost. Uh, In 2025, our immigration levels will hit 500,000 immigrants. Uh, In 2015, when the Liberals were first elected, uh, our immigration levels were at about 300,000. Add to that international students uh, and uh, many other uh, ways to get into Canada. Um, What do you think our immigration levels should be at? Well, I I think you hit... The nail on the head pretty well, Joss, in summing up the state of affairs. When I was, a, when I was born, there were about seven workers in, uh, in the economy for every retiree. Now that number is closer to three. So, um, you know, I face a number of challenges. One is generational and trying to make sure that if we want the country that has, it is defined by our healthcare system, defined by the broad services that we provide as a country to people, mm-hmm. um, we need to have a, a workforce that, that is vibrant and that goes through immigration. I, you know, for reference, well over 90% of the workforce increase last year was driven by immigration. The gross domestic product increase uh, is driven by immigration. So, um, 
in my mind, we can't afford to reduce it. Uh, people often get spooked by numbers. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's totally understandable. When you ask people where they would want to cut, there's never any clear consensus. Uh, when we look at the levels of people coming into Canada and that 500,000 number, that's composed 60% of people that will increase, you know, have a net increase tomorrow on the gross domestic product of this country. So if you ask people if you want to reduce that, they'd obviously say no. Uh, and then parents, grandparents, spouses is another category that occupies about 20% of that. Um, obviously, uh, we want people and families to, to maintain that, that nucleus that, uh, that, that, that keeps their mental health and the stability of their children mm-hmm. uh, and their economic prosperity sound. Um, and then there's another category of, uh, of unknown uh, in, in a world that is increasingly uh, characterized by uncontrolled migration, asylum seekers, driven by war, famine, um, the effects of global warming. Uh, I'm jumping over a few uh, really generational challenges that we're facing. And that number hit, hit about 100 million worldwide. We all see scenes of, of our uh, partner countries in Europe facing uncontrolled migration. Mm-hmm. Canada is the envy of the world. Uh, and what we've done is something that uh, is somewhat novel in going out and getting government-assisted refugees. We've opened our hearts to Ukrainians facing a nuclear aggressor in Russia. Uh, to Afghanistan and Syria, mm-hmm. uh, but I'll acknowledge that, and, and no one would fault us for it. We've opened up our hearts, and, and well, we should. But that has had repercussions on the system that yeah, you're identifying, and that's, and, 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 and that's what I'm saying. Line. Yeah, and and and, I, and that's what I'm saying. I, there's no doubt you're talking to an immigrant and a son of immigrants. So I get where you're coming from, uh, uh, but we're also in the midst of a housing crisis in our major cities and th- even our smaller communities as well. In 2022, we had a million residents move here. I think 607,000 non-permanent residents, 437,000 immigrants. Um, would you consider, or is the government considering reducing? that number and, and look I, i'll be the first to acknowledge we need 2.1 children per family uh, in 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 uh, in uh, this country and uh, just to sustain our population i think we're averaging about 1.4 children per family so immigrants play a, a vital role in that but there also uh, is you know a, a thinking in this country that look there's just too many coming too quickly particularly uh, in the midst of a housing crisis that we need to, you know, tap on the brakes here for a little while uh, and sort of rethink our formula in regards to how many we're allowing in. You know, I won't sit here and, and question the impact of volume. Uh, it, would be, it would be ludicrous to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I do ask myself is, can we do it as a country? The, the housing crisis existed when I got into uh, when I ran for, for Parliament in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't hitting folks as hard because interest on debt was pretty much free. Uh, right now, everyone's feeling that. Um, there is a very human tendency to, to, to blame one source uh, over another. This is, the housing crisis in particular is something that has been uh, a generation in the making, about 30, 40 years. And successive governments, regardless of their political stripes federally, have, have not done a good job in addressing this. Uh, we we started to do that. We put a dent mm-hmm. in things, and, and certainly you've seen the work of Minister Fraser over the last few weeks. Um, we're ready to put a lot more money on the table and a lot more solutions to push uh, provinces and cities to, to do more in terms of densification. Um, there are some very significant initiatives that we've announced very recently that, that will do that. We can't do it alone, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, provinces need to step up. Some have done better uh, than others, and I think that is something that uh, is something I believe uh, that we can all rise to the level regardless of our our political stripes. Mm-hmm. I do hesitate to blame those uh, immigrants and news- newcomers as uh, as the, the source of that. Certainly, they aren't when it comes to that generational challenge of, of a housing crunch. And I would also hasten to say that 
you know, one person coming doesn't mean we need another house. Uh, if you look at international students, a lot of those are, are, are underage and they are billeted by families. There is not a linear equation that says that when I'm trying to look for a new house, it's being challenged by an international student. Um, but certainly I can't ignore volume and the challenges that that faces. But I think as a country, we can do it. Yeah. Look, and, and I think most Canadians are supportive of immigrants, but you brought up the issue of international students here uh, in British Columbia. We have about 227 educational institutions. About 27 of those are public institutions. And the highest numbers I think you're seeing in some of the colleges, 37% or so, are now international students. So our system is heavily reliant on the dollars that they spend in this country. But about 200 of them are private institutions. So people want to learn how to drive a truck, beauty schools, all those types of things. There's a lot of them. But the concern is that some of them are turning into, and have been, diploma mills uh, as a way to get into Canada. So then specifically when we talk about international students, is there a desire on the part of the federal government to really rethink what the system will look like moving forward? Because the general perception, and I say perception uh, among British Columbians, and many of them who are immigrants themselves, um, feel that this has gotten out of hand, that we need to push back or pull back, or at least a system has to be recalibrated in a way where A, they're coming here, of course, they're going to help the economy, but they also shouldn't be taken advantage of either by employers or by schools. Uh, what do you say to that in regards to just our international student system? You know, first, I'd, I'd say, as a rule, international students are uh, a huge contribution to this country. It would be hypocritical for me to suggest otherwise. I mean, half of, <laughs> I could count a dozen people in cabinet that have been, at time, including myself, that have been international students at times. Um, that being said, there, there has been challenges to the integrity of the system, in, including fraud and an unhealthy ecosystem that falls short of fraud mm-hmm. uh, that has created some perverse incentives. Uh, the, un, the classic and, and historical underfunding by provinces in particular of post-secondary education has caused institu- institutions to adjust and charge four times more they would ca- charge, for example, a B.C. resident. Um, there are some good actors in the system. There are some bad actors in the system. Uh, UBC, for example, ha- has partnered with us and really worked on housing and, uh, and, 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 and is, you know, the example of an institution that is, um, is doing some really good work. Um, there are others that are not, um, and they are hiding. And I think we need to work with provinces to start calling them out, to start looking at the work that the federal government needs to do to kind of rein this in a bit. Um, I I can't, as the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship, be everything to everyone. I should not be the post, the police, the underfunding of post-secondary education. Mm-hmm. But I do need to attack fraud. Uh, I do need to attack the challenges to the integrity of the system that actually um, stigmatizes those international students that are a huge contribution to the country and really work on punishing those bad actors who, as you said and alluded to, are creating at times uh, in other countries a sense of false hope mm-hmm. and the false hope that that um, that is entertained in order to lure people here to pay them forty grand to become Uber drivers, which is not what we're looking for, um, and those people should not be exploited. Yeah. Minister, uh, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to having you in the studio soon. Uh, enjoy your uh, time here uh, in the Lower Mainland. You too, and just wanted to wish your listeners a great weekend. Our lead story today was the fact the city of Surrey has launched a petition to BC Supreme Court to try and halt the ongoing transition from the RCMP uh, to the Surrey Police Service. Uh, It is seeking a judicial review of the province's uh, July 19th decision uh, to try and force the municipality to go through with the police transition. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, this uh, court challenge is Keith Baldry, Global BC's 
Legislative Bureau Chief. Good afternoon, Keith. Hello, Jazz. And let's discuss the story that would never goes away. No, never goes away. <laughs> never goes away. So what are you hearing today? Well, I've uh, obviously heard Peter German, who's representing Surrey, give his explanation or his reasons for this, um, which aren't don't seem to be legal reasons, as more political reasons, that uh, this is an elected council whose decision has been overturned wrongly, and that RCMP has been around Surrey for a long time, so it should be allowed to continue. Had several conversations with public safety Mike Farmer, who's in Quebec today at a, at a federal-provincial justice minister's conference. And I have to tell you, I mean, I've talked to farmers scores, dozens of times about this file. The notion that Surrey would go to court has certainly been expected all along. That was, you know, certainly a card they always were willing to play. But I remember asking farmers a year ago, have you got legal advice that says what you could do under the Act is sound and could withstand a Surrey court challenge? And he was adamant back then they have solid legal advice that the Police Act's powers laid out for the minister are clear enough for him to make the decision that he made. And I get the sense he's almost, you know, not surprised by this, but kind of exasperated that this continues to be the story that doesn't go away. I think they view this as simply another delaying tactic from the Surrey Municipal Hall. And I couldn't help but feel that I could almost, even though we're on the telephone, I could almost see his eyeballs rolling back in his head, like, here we go again, as if, you know, this was not unexpected at all. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is going to happen beyond the, you know, this moving to the courts? What do you expect from Mr. Farnworth or the government in regards to responding to this outside of court? Well, I don't think you're going to see any response other than perhaps a brief in front of a judge on a judicial review saying the Surrey has no jurisdiction here. Uh, so there'll be that response in court. Um, but there's also going to be some changes to the Police Act that will be introduced uh, this week, either Monday or Tuesday. I'll be reporting those on Global tonight. And that goes to changes that affect not necessarily this particular dispute, although perhaps there will be a change on that. There is some rumblings there's going to be a specific measure brought in that, you know, we'll see what Surrey thinks about it. But also there's going to be several other changes. One is changing the Police Act to ensure that if any municipality were to do something like this again, a couple things. A minister will actually be uh, an, have an earlier involvement in this rather than late in the day. It'll be right at the beginning. The minister of the day, whoever it is, whether it's a different party, different government, will have access to information pertaining to any transition right at the beginning rather than late in the day and not conflicting information. It has to be, you know, information everyone agrees with. And also a provision, I'm not sure how this is going to be worded, to ensure that no municipality that embarks on a police transition will be able to change its mind, as Surrey did, which was the big complicating factor here. I mean, they went down a path and went down a path, went down a path, had an election and suddenly reversed course. And I think the Police Act is going to be amended to ensure that something like that scenario is not repeated uh, in the days ahead. Because there are other municipalities, you know, they're going to be looking at transition to other police forces, either moving from RCMP to municipal or potentially moving from municipal to a regional. What, what I find interesting, I mean, what, these two examples you've given me, just I would call it the Surrey legislation, quite frankly. I mean, the, the the previous administration could have been a lot more transparent in regards to how this transition would work, what the potential cost, you're not going to know all the costs, but the potential costs in a much more open way. Uh, and as you said, you change council, a majority changes, and all of a sudden you, you have this issue that is before the government now. Now, my understanding is beyond the cost. Now, Mr. German, during our three o'clock conversation, said, look, the difference between the RCMP and SP 
ATS over 10 years is going to be $464 million that three taxpayers uh, will have to deal with. They also said that uh, excluding transition costs, the SPC, SPS will cost $31 million more annually than the RCMP. That's page nine of the um, document that they had filed. But one of the other issues they brought up is the issue of the community charter and whether or not uh, you know the, the city has a say uh, in regarding uh, you know policing and the costs. I, I did push um, the Mr. German a little bit on the police act issue uh, at the three o'clock hour. Take a listen to, to our conversation at that point. Does the police act not give final say to the solicitor general and the provincial government? I mean, municipalities are creatures of the provincial government. I mean, through a stroke of a pen, not that it would happen. A city couldn't exist without the provincial government giving them the opportunity to exist. There are creatures of the provincial government. The Police Act, to my understanding, basically says the Solicitor General has the ultimate say. The government, provincial government, has the ultimate say in this. It, it doesn't matter whether or not what Ms. Locke and her colleagues ran on and whether or not they oppose one policing service over another. It's, it would almost be irrelevant. Ultimately, what the law says is the Police Act, which is the provincial government. Am I wrong here? Not that you're right or wrong. It, it is an issue for the court at this point, Jazz. Um, that is really that goes to the the nexus of the uh, petition that was filed, the mm-hmm. jurisdiction of the province. Where does it begin, and where does it end? And certainly, the Police Act would be a relevant piece of legislation, but there may other may be other legislation as well that's relevant. And so, Keith, uh, that was uh, Peter German at three o'clock. So I was going through some of this. Uh, page ten of this document, point uh, fifty seven seven subsection two here. It says. The provincial government must not assign responsibilities to municipalities unless there is a provision for resources required to fulfill the responsibility. So I think there's a focus on the community charter here. That, I think, is going to be their core issue legally. I'm not saying it's going to work. I'm just saying in the document here, it looks like they're focusing on the community charter and then the second issue, which is just the costs alone over 10 years. Well, first of all, on the cost, the numbers keep changing. So my rule of thumb is I don't believe anyone on the cost, the provincial government or Surrey, they haven't shown any supporting documents to come up with, with without a question what the costs are going to be on either side. The government's never explained why they're giving $150 million and not 160 or 140 And the depending on what council you talk in, talk in Surrey, the numbers keep changing there as well. So I think the costs are kind of irrelevant, and I don't think a judge cares about that. It will perhaps turn on – it's going to turn on the law. And the community charter and municipal rights versus um, provincial rights. What's interesting, this is not the only file that pits the province against municipalities. Because, of course, you've got the provincial government now saying they're also about to bring in a law, either this week or next, that's going to change the zoning powers of municipalities and give the province more power to affect zoning changes within a municipality. So right now, the BC NDB government has served notice. It is willing to exert its provincial authority over municipalities on a number of levels. In Surrey's case, when it comes to policing, in other jurisdictions, when it comes to housing. And it may not stop there. And I know they've got a team of lawyers that, you know, dwarf anything Surrey's got, that have been beavering away on this file of what ultimately has the power here, municipalities or the province. And the province has signaled it's very comfortable on at least two fronts that it has the power at the end of the day. And that's why I don't detect any panic over here. Our guest is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. We're talking about the City of Surrey launching a petition to BC Supreme Court to try and halt the ongoing transition from the RCMP to the Surrey Police Service. Please give me a call on the open line, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Uh, let's go to our open line. Let's go to uh, Heather in Surrey. Hi, Jazz. How are 
Hi there. Hi. What's on your mind? I I think they should just get on with it. Every single delay is just going to cost more money. Crazy. Are you are you comfortable with the four hundred? This is and uh, I know Keith doesn't believe the numbers, but uh, according to Peter German, it's four hundred and sixty million dollars extra under the Surrey Police Service over ten years. If even it's half that, you're comfortable with that as a Surrey resident? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> you got to pay more. It's gonna there's gonna be something there at the end of the day. And the city says in their document that it is going to cost about thirty one million dollars extra every single year to run the SPS, which generally municipal forces do cost more uh, than than the RCMP. So I guess the cost is one of those issues. Maybe Keith, jump in here for a second. The province has already put one hundred and fifty million dollars on the table. So the four hundred and sixty million. Let's just say if those numbers are right, just for a moment, believable. And there's 150 million towards that, so you're, you're taking some of that 460. It's coming down pretty quick. That's about 310. Could there be more money on the table if, if let's just say Surrey did come to the provincial government in a much more diplomatic way to get some money? Oh, conceivably for sure. But I can tell you, talking to senior officials in the ministry, they regard Surrey's numbers as utter fiction. You know, they they just think they're dreamt up. Worst case scenario, throw everything into the hopper, come up with as big a number you, as you can. And then the number is going to be different than the provincial number, no question. They probably lowball in it, and the Surrey municipality is high balance. So my advice: stay away from the numbers until you actually see. Show the, as my math teacher would say, show your work, show it in the margins. How did you get to this figure? Because until either side says this is how we get to this figure, I just don't think any number is believable. And that's the hard problem Surrey and the government are going to have. They've got to square away their numbers when it comes to costs, and they haven't done that yet. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's go to is it Perry in Surrey? Hi, Jess. Hi, Perry. What's on your mind? Well, being a resident of Surrey, you know, there's a huge timeline here. Doug McCallum, in the beginning, uh, he had the right idea. But when COVID hit us, he should have put the brakes on. Everything was supply chain affected. Mm-hmm. And then he didn't do that. And that got everybody upset. And then we elected a new mayor. And then she said she was going to go for it. I, it just, it's just crazy. It's just time to move on. So you're okay with the, the you think that the, it's 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 way past the you know debate now. Let's just get on with the transition to Surrey Police. Service. Oh, it, it's yeah. There was time to debate a long time ago. They didn't opt to do that. It's just time to move on. Yeah, Perry. Thank you for your call. Appreciate it. Every uh, time I get stopped by Surrey residents at the legislature, which is on a daily basis, that seems to be the overwhelming sentiment. Let's just move on to something else. Yeah. Um, I don't think either side has a lot of credibility with the voters of Surrey on this issue. I don't think either side can make its case in front of the voters at this late date. I think people are just justifiably tired of this thing. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, in regards to Mr. Farnworth and his comments uh, earlier today, we can expect. Something on Monday, Monday or Tuesday. I'm told mm-hmm. uh, one of those days is we're going to see uh, something in front of the house. And keep in mind, an all-party committee uh, has been at work, was at work. They finished their report last year on a complete rewrite of the police act. So there's going to be all sorts of changes to the police act that have nothing to do with the Surrey transition. But there are going to be changes that do affect other transitions in other jurisdictions and municipalities. And there might be something in there that affects Surrey specifically that we haven't figured out yet. Well, it is a story that keeps on giving, and I ain't complaining about that. Have That's a great weekend. Good. Well, federal conservative leader Pierre Paulieu has been visiting British Columbia over the last couple of days. He was in the interior on Wednesday, and today he's in Vancouver. There's a lot to discuss, particularly around housing affordability and the carbon tax. He joins us now. Mr. Paulieu, thank you for speaking to us today. Great to be with you, Mr. Joe. 
Uh, let's talk a little bit about housing. This week, the mayor of Vancouver, along with uh, his majority council, talked about uh, greater density um, uh, around SkyTrain stations, but really focused on housing. It is, remains the major issue, uh, certainly uh, for the Metro Vancouver region. First of all, your thoughts on where you think the federal government's role would be in this broader conversation about greater housing and housing affordability uh, for people in British Columbia. Well, after eight years, Justin Trudeau and the NDP are not worth the housing costs. Uh, housing costs have doubled under eight years of Trudeau. Uh, rent has doubled, mortgage payments have doubled, and even needed down payment has doubled. That's for two reasons. One is uh, interest rates have gone up because of inflationary deficits. And second, uh, bureaucracy blocks home building. Uh, here in Vancouver, uh, City Howe has estimated that uh, government permitting, zoning, bureaucratic delays, taxes, fees, charges, consultants add $1.3 million to the cost of every newly built home. So my common sense plan is to cap spending and cut waste to balance the budget so we can bring down inflation and interest rates on the mortgages. Two, I'm going to incentivize municipalities to speed up and lower the cost of building. I'm going to require that they permit 15% more home building per year. Um, they will, if they beat the target, they'll get a bonus. If they miss the target, they'll get a fine. Uh, so for example, if Vancouver were to beat my home building target by 10%, the municipality would get 10% more money. If they miss it by 10%, they get 10% less money. Strong financial incentive to get the bureaucrats and the taxes out of the way to build, build, build. We'll sell off 6,000 federal buildings and thousands of acres of federal land, and we're going to use all of that property to build affordable homes that people can uh, enjoy. And I think back to the 1970s, uh, and at that point, the federal government, or certainly federal assistance at that time, helped increase uh, housing starts by about 40%. All you have to go is down Oak Street and some of our major thoroughfares. You see these you know, three-story apartment buildings built in the 70s in an era when we used to build, uh, and the federal government was heavily involved in the building of affordable housing. They still play a significant role. Uh, the buildings themselves in these communities, they may be old, but they play a significant role in providing housing uh, for many British Columbians. The federal government's been out of the game for a long time, uh, for a lot of decades. Uh, what makes you think your plan will change things or turn things around quickly enough because we've been out of the game federally for a very long time, and, and this has taken decades to get to this point. And how, what makes you think you can change, turn it around quickly with your plan? Well, I, I would like to take issue with a few points there. One is the federal government is thoroughly involved in housing now. It's more involved than it has been in a half century. In 2017, Justin Trudeau launched an $89 billion federal housing program. And what have been the results? Double the rent, double the down payment, double the mortgage payment, double the cost for housing after eight years of Trudeau's massive bureaucratic programs. Uh, we don't need to build more bureaucracy. We need to build more homes. Uh, and uh, right now, we have these enormous government programs that just suck up money, that don't build anything. In fact, we built fewer homes last year than we did in 1972, a half century earlier. So my common sense plan removes the red tape and the taxes, which are the only things standing in the way of home building. For example, housing costs a third to half in the United States than it costs here in Canada. You go across the border to the, to the United States, where they don't have Justin Trudeau's big programs, 
you can get a house often for a third of the price of what you pay here in Canada. We don't need more government. We have the home builders. We have the land. We have the workers. What we don't have is affordable permits. So my common sense plan removes the bureaucracy and the taxes to let builders build. And that's how we're going to put affordable homes in place for our people. Um, let's move over to another issue when it comes to affordability, and that's the carbon tax. Uh, uh, as you know very well, uh, the carbon tax uh, was first introduced here in British Columbia as a provincial uh, matter in 2008 under Gordon Campbell. The federal government is very much involved now uh, as the, the carbon tax continues to increase every single year uh, until 2030, and there will be a significant increase at the pump for the average Canadian, and it continues to grow up. Grow, go up. Uh, first of all, uh, for the record, what would you do once you're elected with the carbon tax? Tax the tax. Uh, after eight years, uh, the Trudeau NDP carbon tax is not worth the cost. And now they want to raise it to 61 cents a litre. That's a quadrupling of the tax. People won't be able to afford it. I was just speaking to shipyard workers at C-SPAN today, and they were telling me the enormous ca- cost they pay for gas to drive in from the Fraser Valley or Coquitlam to do their jobs. They have no choice but to drive. There aren't realistic transit options for them. We're punishing people for doing what they must do. And let's not forget that the Trudeau NDP carbon tax is a tax on food. You tax the fuel of the farmer who makes the food and the trucker who ships the food. You tax all who buy mm-hmm. the food. So I will ax the tax to bring home affordable gas, heat, and groceries. So, uh, look, uh, I think most people would say, look, the carbon tax when it was brought in, it, it looked like it was a market response to an issue that we all had to deal with. That was put a price on carbon. But at the same time, you are correct that it is impacting the bottom line for a lot of folks. Uh, in this case, uh, what would you want to do if you're going to eliminate the tax? Because some would argue we still have a moral uh, obligation to deal with the issue of climate change, and we have a role to play in the broader global push in dealing with climate change as well. Well, my approach is the inverse of the liberal NDP approach. They want to make traditional energy more expensive. I want to make uh, carbon-free alternatives more affordable. So I would green light green projects to supply emissions-free electricity onto our grid. Uh, We need to speed up approval for safe nuclear power in Saskatchewan, Alberta, Ontario, and New Brunswick that can replace uh, high-emitting coal. Uh, I want to speed up approval for hydroelectric dams in Quebec so that they can double their hydroelectric production. I want to Uh, incentivize and approve carbon capture and storage so that our energy sector can bury the carbon back in the ground where it came from. I want to export more of Canada's clean natural gas using our hydroelectricity to liquefy it and send it to Asia to shut down dirty coal fire plants. And those electric car batteries that we see driving around in in Teslas, that shouldn't come from coal burning China. It should come from Canadian mines. So we need to fast track approval to mine lithium, cobalt, and other minerals of electrification. That's green light green projects. That's how we bring down emissions and the cost of living. If the provincial government, if any provincial government, after you ax the tax, if you are elected as prime minister of this country, if uh, a provincial government wishes to bring in a carbon tax on their own, you would be okay with that? Well, I wouldn't be okay with it, but I wouldn't have the constitutional authority to stop them. Uh, unfortunately, um, but I would encourage people to vote for uh, 
local MLAs who want to axe the tax. Let's have all levels of government committed to the common sense conservative policy of axing the tax. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, just to get to news of today, uh, your thoughts on Bill C-69 and the ruling today from the Supreme Court of Canada. Today, the Supreme Court ruled that the anti-resource development law, C-69, violates our Constitution. Justin Trudeau's overbearing, big, powerful federal government has exceeded its constitutional authorities, according to the Supreme Court, and the consequences have been devastating. Uh, we've lost out on job opportunities, natural gas liquefaction plants that could have been built by now to supply First Nations coastal communities with more paychecks. And worse than that, we have allowed those jobs to go to foreign dictators. Just this week, Qatar signed a deal to sell 3.5 million tons a year of liquefied gas to France. We could have sold that gas. Now Qatar gets the money and they finance Hamas in the Middle East. So who do you want the money to go to? Hamas takes I know who I stand for. Uh, Mr. Pauliev, uh, I know you've had a very busy uh, few days here in British Columbia. Look forward to chatting with you again and have you in studio as well. Thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Great to be with you, Mr. Joe Hall. Many blessings. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.